Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. Today in our feature, Enrique Sands from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talks about two Indiana cities that have met EPA standards. That's coming up later in the program, but first your environmental headlines. Two southwestern Indiana environmental health advocacy groups have received a significant grant to undertake regional monitoring of toxic and fine particle air pollution, as well as some water pollution. Southwestern Indiana Citizens for Quality of Life, based in Dale, and Valley Watch, Incorporated of Evansville, are the recipients of the grant. The grant funds come from the American Electric Power Mitigation Money Fund, a fund of Central Indiana Community Foundation under a legal settlement with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, eight states, and 13 citizens groups. The groups were awarded $191,450 to produce three toxic air monitors that monitor emissions from any source in real time, as well as 50 fine particle monitors that are both portable and stationary. Each report will appear in near real time on the internet so the public can access the data. A limited number of water testing kits will also be purchased and used as needed to assess tap water quality. Currently, both groups are challenging a 2019 permit to to Riverview Energy to construct a coal-to-diesel refinery in northern Spencer County in the town of Dale. Southwestern Indiana Citizens for Quality of Life formed in 2018 in response to the coal-to-diesel refinery proposal, while Valley Watch has operated to protect the public health and environment of the lower Ohio River Valley since 1981. Mary Hess, president of Southwestern Indiana Citizens for Quality of Life, celebrated the grant award and purchases. She said, quote, We hope to bring our fights against pollution in our communities to the next level. We look forward to providing to Southern Indiana what the Indiana Department of Environmental Management has failed to do in providing state-of-the-art monitors. We hope the data will give us the ability to force regulators to enforce air and water quality standards in our communities and state, end quote. While the nation struggles to find ways to put money in people's pockets and to ramp up the economy so people can get back to work, over $43 billion in low-interest loans earmarked for clean energy projects sits undistributed by the Trump administration, according to the New York Times. The president opposes renewable energy sources. He suggested that wind turbines cause cancer. He says they kill birds, even though the numbers are 1,000 those killed by domestic and feral cats. 
he champions coal despite the trend away from coal for economic and health reasons. Despite his unwillingness to champion green energy infrastructure, some lawmakers and energy experts think it is unacceptable that tens of billions of dollars that Congress long ago authorized with bipartisan support have not been dispersed. The loans passed through Congress well before the coronavirus forced nearly 30 million people into unemployment. However, they have been held up by the Energy Department. Quote, they haven't put out any or almost any of these loans since he's become president, end quote, said Representative Frank Pallone, Jr. of New Jersey, chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. The U.S. solar sector has lost 65,000 jobs due to the COVID-19 crisis, erasing five years of job gains, according to the Solar Energy Industries Association. According to their analysis, the American solar industry now employs around 188,000 people, down from 250,000 at the beginning of the year. Many of those jobs could come back in an economic rebound. Still, it's a stark reversal for what had been one of the country's fastest-growing industries, forecast to reach more than 300,000 jobs by June of this year in the absence of the coronavirus. The solar industry is now losing jobs at a faster rate than the broader American economy, and federal relief looks uncertain. Under cover of the COVID-19 pandemic, the EPA approved the use of a new herbicide, Isoxaflutrol, without the mandated public input. The EPA approved Isoxaflutrol for use in 25 states, Indiana not among them, by bypassing the standard public input process for the approval. It's the usual EPA practice to announce that a new herbicide is up for approval by posting the announcement in the Federal Register, where scientists, public health experts, and the general public can see it and then submit comments on it. However, the herbicide's registration for approval was announced in a press release, not the Federal Register. According to the Pesticide Action Network, quote, scientists shared that the press release EPA issued around the approval caught everyone off guard as they were waiting for the comment period to open and never got word that it already had, end quote. Isoxaflutrol is the active ingredient in the new Ally 27 weed killer, manufactured by the German agrochemical company BASF. The EPA itself has classified isoxaflutrol as a probable carcinogen. Also, it's prone to drifting into crops it isn't applied to. The Pesticide Action Network contends that isoxaflutrol should never have been approved, especially not in the middle of a pandemic without required public input. If you're looking to get outside and enjoy the remarkable vistas that the U.S. national parks offer, you may be in luck. Some national parks are planning a phased reopening. Two of the nation's most popular national parks, Yellowstone and Grand Canyon, are starting to allow visitors. Yellowstone will reopen on a limited basis starting on Monday, May 18th. Yellowstone has been closed to visitors since March 24th, according to CNN. That has not stopped people from visiting anyway. Last week, a woman suffered burns after sneaking into the park and falling into a thermal pool while backing up to take photographs of the old faithful geyser. 
Wyoming asked to have the park reopen, so the first phase of reopening will only allow admission to entrance gates in Wyoming and access to the park's southern loop. Entrances in Montana will remain closed. Yellowstone Park's superintendent, Pam Shawley, added that a massive amount of signage will encourage social distancing and the public's behavior will help determine when the park can fully open. According to CNN, Grand Canyon National Park will reopen the South Rim South Entrance by May 18th. The entrance will allow incoming traffic to enter for daytime access from 6 to 10 a.m. Certain viewpoints, picnic areas, and restrooms will be open for use. However, the South Rim's East Entrance, Desert View, Grand Canyon Village, and a number of trails will remain closed. A company called Texas LNG has proposed a liquid natural gas terminal in Brownsville, Texas, that would damage 625 acres of land, with 282 acres permanently affected. The terminal would threaten the natural habitat of over 150 threatened and endangered species. Of the land Texas LNG plans to destroy, according to the data from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, 47% is open land, 28% scrub, 14% wetlands, and 11% open water habitat that is crucial to the survival of the protected species in Cameron County. Altogether, the three proposed liquefied natural gas facilities would emit 10.1 million metric tons of greenhouse gases per year, the equivalent of over 2 million cars on the road for a year. Other emissions the facilities would release include nitrogen oxide, carbon monoxide, and other organic compounds and particulate matter. Those admissions would have devastating health effects on the local community, the Carrizo Gomecrudo tribe. The facilities would not only threaten the community's health, but also their sacred rights. On May 22nd and 23rd, the Environmental Advocacy Group Beyond Extreme Energy, the tribe, and the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy held a virtual tribunal for human rights to address the continued attempts to eradicate the Carrizo Comacrudo tribe's culture, history, environment, and health in South Texas. The American red wolf is critically endangered and the world's most endangered canid. Only 15 to 20 red wolves are left in the wild, all in eastern North Carolina. The North Carolina Zoo has just announced that five American red wolf pups were born at the zoo on April 21st as part of the zoo's breeding program. All five pups and their mother are healthy and thriving. This litter is the wolf couple's first. American red wolves were declared extinct in the wild in 1980 because of hunting and habitat loss. However, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service began attempting to reintroduce them into the Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge as part of the American Red Wolf Recovery Program. By 2006, the numbers of red wolves in the wild increased to 130, a decrease between 2013 and 15 after the Fish and Wildlife Service began permitting landowners to shoot and kill wolves. In 2018, a federal judge ruled that the killing violated the Endangered Species Act. The pups are being raised with as little human contact as possible in hopes that eventually they can be released into the wild. A decrease in funding during the COVID-19 pandemic and the social distancing that the pandemic requires are taking their toll on Indiana environmental organizations. 
as the Indy Star reported. The Indiana Forest Alliance, for example, found that, quote, working from home has thrown a wrench into the organization's operations, said Executive Director Jeff Stant, end quote. For one thing, working from home is curtailing Forest Alliance's efforts to rally supporters against a proposed highway in southern Indiana that would bisect the forest. The organization has found online meetings to be helpful, but not as effective as in-person ones. To cut costs, the Forest Alliance is thinking about a halt to its print newsletter, in which case the Forest Alliance would reach fewer supporters. Stance said donors aren't sending in as many contributions as in the past. He commented, quote, a lot of times environmental projects are seen as secondary, end quote. The Hoosier Environmental Council is another organization feeling the pitch. According to Executive Director Jesse Carbonda, at the beginning of the epidemic, contributions from individual donors dropped off dramatically and the organization has had to cancel all its in-person workshops and training sessions. However, in honor of Earth Day and Month, the group conducted 22 live online programs that attracted over 20,000 views. That programming, along with increased phone calls and emails to the council's donor list, was successful in producing donations. Now that Yosemite National Park has been closed to visitors in response to the COVID-19 epidemic, Park officials say wild bears that live in the park are having a ball. Normally, millions of people visit the park each year, making life difficult for the bears. According to a wildlife biologist who works with them, this time of year, quote, there can be literally walls of cars, stop and go traffic, or people in the park, end quote. With the human population in Yosemite down to just park staff, the bears are free to roam and eat one of their favorite foods, fresh spring grass. They are highly motivated by food and can cause property damage and even human injuries in their search for food. A critical part of staff duties is to ensure that humans visiting the park store food properly. Park staff also report having seen more coyotes and bobcats since visitors have been absent from the park. Veteran customers generating their own solar power would be compensated less for the extra energy they send back to the power grid under a request filed with the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission, or IURC, on May 8th. Currently, utility customers are financially credited at retail rates for the extra electricity they send back to the power grid. Such arrangements, called net metering, are being phased out in Indiana under a law signed by Governor Eric Holcomb three years ago. The law ends net metering for new solar power installation beginning in 2022. However, it also allows utilities to seek an early end to net metering through something called an excess distributed generation tariff once certain conditions are met. Vectron is the first investor-owned utility in Indiana to make the request. Company officials say it will balance out an arrangement in which most customers are subsidizing a smaller percentage of customers for generating solar power. Spokeswoman Natalie Head said the request is the next step in enacting the provisions of the law phasing out net metering and is not meant to discourage the customers from installing solar power. 
If the IURC approves it, then veteran customers who install solar power after December 31st would be credited at the lower wholesale price, plus an additional 25%. Customers now being credited up to $0.15 cents per kilowatt hour of electricity would instead be credited about 3 to $0.04 cents per kilowatt hour, says Kaz Swizz. Director of Regulatory Analysis for the Utility. Net metering supporters argue this would make it more difficult for customers wishing to install solar power on homes, businesses, and schools to offset the cost and justify the investment. And now for our feature, we will hear Enrique Sands from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talk about two Indiana cities which have recently met EPA standards. Parts of two Indiana cities have officially met federal air quality standards for sulfur dioxide and lead, but recent gains may not tell the whole truth about environmental health in those areas. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced the area containing the Perry, Wayne, and Center townships of Indianapolis officially met the 2010 sulfur dioxide air quality standard for the first time since 2013, and a 1.1 square mile portion of Muncie met the 2008 annual lead standard for the first time since 2010. The EPA and the Indiana Department of Environmental Management also proposed to remove the 2008 ozone standard non-attainment status for Lake and Porter counties. IDEM Commissioner Bruno Pigott said that Hoosiers across Indiana are breathing cleaner air today because of IDEM's collaborative partnership with the EPA. Is that statement accurate? Let's take a look. The Indianapolis region reduced its levels of sulfur dioxide below the 75 parts per billion allowed by the 2010 standard by 2016 and submitted a proposal for rig designation a year later. Sulfur dioxide is released into the air mainly through the burning of fossil fuels by power plants and other industrial facilities. The gases can harm the respiratory system and make breathing difficult. It can also harm trees by damaging foliage and decreasing growth. IDEM was able to reduce the amount of sulfur dioxide in the Indianapolis area by requiring facilities with annual sulfur dioxide emissions greater than 10 tons per year to comply with several federal air pollution rules. That includes the cross-state air pollution rule, the mercury and air toxic standards, better known as the MATS rule, and the national emission standards for hazardous air pollutants for major sources. Those are the same rules that the Trump administration has tried to water down or eliminate. In just four years, the sulfur dioxide emissions from the six facilities were greatly reduced. The installation of new controls allowed the Belmont Advanced Wastewater Treatment Plant to cut sulfur dioxide emissions by two-thirds and the Cometco Battery Recycling Facility to reduce its own emissions by about 98% over six years. The addition of new fuel switches reduced sulfur dioxide emissions at Citizens Thermal by 75% and at the formerly coal-fired Indianapolis Power & Light Harding Street Station by 4,000 tons a year. The Rolls-Royce Corporation facility reduced sulfur content, reducing sulfur dioxide emissions by about half. The Vertelis Agriculture and Nutrition Specialties facility was able to reduce emissions by about 97% by adhering to federal and state operational limits. Now let's take a look about 60 miles northeast of Indy. Federal air quality standards also help the Muncie area improve its lead air pollution. Lead distributes throughout the body and the blood and collects in bones. Exposure to lead air pollution can affect the nervous system, kidney function, immune system, reproductive and developmental systems, and the cardiovascular system. But only a small part of the city was under threat, according to the EPA. 
a 1.1 square mile part of the city's southwestern outskirts housing the Exide Technologies lead acid battery recycling plant was found to have lead emissions greater than the 0.15 micrograms per cubic meter allowed by the 2008 lead standard in 2010. According to court documents, XI Technologies filed for bankruptcy in 2013. The U.S. and the state of Indiana sued the company for alleged Clean Air Act violations. As part of its bankruptcy proceedings, the company signed a consent decree with the federal government and the state of Indiana where the company would agree to install air pollution control equipment, continue operating existing pollution controls, and comply with emissions rates without admitting liability. IDEM was able to reduce the amount of lead being emitted at Exide Technologies between 2013 and 2015 through the strict adherence to lead emission control measures and the federal NESHAP rule for secondary lead smelters. The area's lead emissions averages fell from nearly 0.35 micrograms per cubic meter to just above 0.05 micrograms per cubic meter. The monitoring ended on an emission spike with lead emissions averages rising just above 0.1 micrograms per cubic meter. IDEM submitted a request for redesignation in April 2016, citing the three-year rolling averages as proof it had met the standards. The area's redesignation may not signal that its pollution woes are gone. Between 2015 and early 2018, IDEM found Exide Technologies violated multiple environmental rules, including a failure to perform lead emissions compliance testing of the process baghouse, which collects the dust from the recycling processes at the facility for about two years. IDEM levied a $69,250 penalty, which the company paid off in August 2019. In July 2017, IDEM also began investigating complaints that the children of two Exide employees had elevated blood lead levels, but it dropped the investigation once it was determined it was not an air emissions issue. The Delaware County Health Department investigated and found that the employees had tracked lead from the facility into their vehicles and their homes. That investigation was referred to the Indiana Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which then levied a $1,933 penalty for a, quote, serious violation. People living near the non-attainment area protested Exide Technologies in 2018, saying the plant was making people sick. The protesters demanded that Muncie and the state call for lead testing in the air, soil, and groundwater for hundreds of families living near the plant. Right now, the company is trying to find the source of a leak at the facility's containment building. Now let's head to the Northwest where Lake and Porter counties are experiencing ozone troubles on paper. Ozone is created by the chemical reaction between nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds emitted by cars, power plants, and other polluters. Ozone can trigger a variety of health problems including chest pain, coughing, throat irritation, and airway inflammation. Lake and Porter counties have been in violation of the 2008 8-hour ozone standard since 2012, although both counties have met the standard's ozone air quality requirement. The 2008 standard requires an area's emissions of ozone to not exceed 0.075 parts per million. It arrives at that average by evaluating the three-year average of the fourth-highest daily maximum 8-hour average ozone concentration measured at each monitor within a non-attainment area each year pretty difficult, but easy to meet if you follow the law. Both Lake and Porter counties have met that goal at both of each county's monitoring sites. Lake County averaged 0.041 parts per million at its Gary monitoring site and 0.039 parts per million at its Hammond monitoring site between 2017 and 2019. Porter County averaged 0.042 parts per million at its Ogden Dunes monitoring station and 0.042 parts per million at its Valparaiso monitoring station. 
That's not perfect, but it's well below the 0.075 parts per million required by the law. Despite individual emissions levels, both counties are counted as being in serious non-attainment of the 2008 ozone standard because they are lumped in with other more polluting parts of the country. Lake and Porter counties are part of the EPA's Chicago, Naperville, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin 2008 8-hour non-attainment zone. The zone was created to uphold older versions of ozone standards and IDEM is petitioning the EPA to be excluded from that non-attainment zone. The request was submitted in February and will not be final until the public has an opportunity to comment on the proposal. For Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976 offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for our events calendar. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources is asking paddlers to report their wildlife observations while paddling Indiana waterways from June 1st to July 31st. Paddling is a great way to enjoy Indiana's natural beauty, observe wildlife, and connect with nature. State officials hope to collect more information about the wildlife that frequents Indiana's waterways. If you paddle, you can collect the information that will help Indiana manage wildlife for future generations. Volunteer paddlers can help by signing up to complete paddling trip postcards documenting the wildlife they've observed while on the water. Anyone interested can learn more or sign up to volunteer by visiting in.gov slash paddlecraftindex. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. 
Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.